his son um, ordered uh, an autopsy uh, because his son was convinced my dad didn't die of cancer. Well, prior to him coming to us, he had stage four uh, pancreatic cancer with metastasis to the stomach and the liver and the esophagus when he came to us. So when the three and a half years later, when he passed away, his son ordered an autopsy and the autopsy, the son read the autopsy report at his dad's funeral because it said there was no cancer present and he died of cirrhosis of the liver caused from the chemotherapy that he had prior to coming to us. Hello and welcome to the Health Detective Podcast by Functional Diagnostic Nutrition. We bring you interviews from people who have conquered the trickiest of health challenges using the Functional Diagnostic Nutrition philosophy and similar healing modalities. You're going to hear from experts who have been through the ringer with their health issues and yet managed to come out on the other side. If you're interested in natural healing and or functional medicine, congrats, you are in the right place. You can always visit us at functionaldiagnosticnutrition.com. But for now, here is today's episode. All right. Hello there, Dr. Connors. Welcome to the Health Detective Podcast. How are you? I am great. Thanks for having me. Yeah. For those that don't know, I'll just... I, Always let people shout out their stuff at the end, but we can actually mention this right away. Uh, Reed Davis was just on Dr. Connor's podcast, so I would highly recommend going and checking that out. I'm not sure if that's already released or will be released sometime in the future, but just in case, what is the podcast name so those people can go check it out? It's Connor's Clinic Live. Cool. And uh, we'll have that in the show notes for you guys, but definitely uh, go over there and check it out. Reed has... He's on so many podcasts, but he always finds something new to say. So a lot of our audience likes uh, going in and listening to the ones that he does as well. One of the things that we always do on the show is typically talk about how people got into the space. Um, we don't want to necessarily spend a tremendous amount of time on that today because I'm just fascinated by what you do. Uh, but in summary, how did you get into this space? Because that was one thing I'm unsure of. Did you have your own health challenges or did you just find information that led you uh, away from the conventional path? Into the space of taking care of people in an alternative process, you mean? Yes, yes. Um, well, I became a chiropractor at, in 1986, so I'm an old guy. So I've been doing this a long time. How I got into chiropractic is I was had my own health challenges. Uh, I was an athlete in high school and injured myself, and uh, I was blessed enough to have a mother that was very into alternative things but way back then you know in the 70s uh and she brought my brother and i to two chiropractors so we went to a chiropractor that did kinesiology and acupuncture and was very natural minded a lot of nutrition and, and i do at a very early age at least when i was in high school if that's what i wanted to be so i went down that pathway immediately right after high school, planned out my college that way, and um, became a chiropractor in 1986. Uh, really practiced functional medicine, though we didn't call it that then. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, But what I do now is very different, so I don't practice chiropractic any longer. Right. Um, I gave up my license 15 years ago to be practicing what I do now, which is um, how I got into this is a whole other story. So now I see sure. mainly people with cancer. So that's really 90% of our practice is cancer patients. And most of them are stage four and have been through the medical realm and have 
gone down the whole, you know, standards of care protocols and it didn't work and now they're seeking us out. Um, and how that all started was um, my interest in, in um, rife therapy, which is light frequency therapy. That really was merging back when I was in chiropractic school studying alternative methods and read about Royal Raymond Rife. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's just fantastic. And I was just drawn to that, but felt like, I don't know, I'm a chiropractor for goodness sake. So how am I going to, I can't treat cancer patients. And I really had zero interest to treat cancer patients. It just wasn't on my heart at all. Well, a lot of things happened through my practice. We ended up selling my practice, my wife and kids and I, we, had, we did full-time missionary work in Mexico for a period of time, came back to practice. And it wasn't more than a year that we were back into practice that one of my patients came to me and she said, I have breast cancer in both breasts and they're wanting me to do chemo and radiation and I'm declining. And they said, I only have three months to live. Um, that was my, you know, aha moment to buy a Rife machine. She lived another 13 years. Um, and within that time, I saw more and more and more cancer patients come to me and really saw the writing on the wall. Got in trouble with the state board. They were after me all the time for what I was doing. I ended up just giving up my chiropractic license just so I could practice taking care of cancer patients. And so right. that brings us kind of kind of up to date. So uh, what we do with cancer. Perfect. Well, that actually, yeah, there was a, a lot there. So thank you for that summarized version of this. It's interesting how many chiropractors I talked to that it, it was the same thing that leads FDNs into becoming FDNs now, right? No one necessarily went out and just randomly chose this path. They kind of had some experiences uh, that led them to this. And then most of the chiropractors I know, especially the ones that have been doing it or were doing it for a while, such as yourself, um, they end up adding in these functional aspects. And so it's very cool to see uh, where you've taken that. And this was the the reason, Dr. Connors, we were so excited to have you on because anyone that listens regularly knows whether intentionally or not, one of the things that we end up focusing on more often than uh, usual is um, uh, the autoimmune aspect of health conditions. And I think that's just par for the course in a lot of functional medicine because autoimmunity is a is a set of conditions that really gets mistreated in Western medicine, in my opinion. But cancer is this whole other thing because not only does it get mistreated in Western medicine, we already know that, but the problem is there is this label on top of your head where you kind of feel like there is this direct or in your uh, patient's case or indirect ticking time bomb. Uh, we lost my aunt to cancer, unfortunately, and they scare the heck out of these people so bad. And perhaps rightfully so, because if you're really dealing with a terminal cancer, you should clearly do something about that. I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't, but it almost doesn't even give these people time to think about all these other things that they can be doing lifestyle and now cancer becomes their life. So these people are coming to you, like you said, pretty much almost at the end of the rope. Are they doing that because they've already tried Western medicine and now they feel like they need to go into alternative options? Well, we certainly do have patients that come to us because they've studied alternative methods Good. in the past and they always told themselves, maybe it's because they had an experience like you. They had an aunt with cancer and went the conventional uh, methods and it didn't work. And they told themselves, I'm not going to do that when I get cancer. We have those patients that come to us that haven't gone down that path yet. But most of our patients have. And and it is, I would say, you hit the nail on the head. People are scared to death. I mean, you, get, you go to the doctor and you hear the C word. It's not only you that are scared. You might be 
positioned mentally in a way that I want to do an alternative thing, but you have family members that are pressuring you. There's a lot of outside pressure too. And certainly the inside pressure in the, in the medical realm, it's, it's, it's heavy. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many times people have you know, said they went to the oncologist for a lump in their breast and, you know, the oncologist said, we need to do a biopsy right away. And they said, well, let me think about it. They're walking out the door to the car and they're getting a call from that same clinic. They just walked out the door and say, we need to schedule your biopsy. And they're like, hey, I told the doctor I need to think about it. Well, we need to get this scheduled right away. He said, we need to get this scheduled right away. There are there are heavy pressure tactics um, by the medical profession in the cancer realm. And I, am, I, I just think that is so unethical and uh, immoral that, um, but it, it exists. And uh, to be honest, it works because these people do often, more often than not, get scared into going down a path that, that they at least had t- more time to think about and analyze and pray about um, then they were led to believe. And I think that's a crime, honestly. It, it is. It's And it's so sad because, like, again, I'm in this space. I've had experiences myself that led me to this. And honestly, Dr. Connors, I tried to put myself in my aunt's shoes, especially because she was diagnosed with a, a specific brain tumor that I can't admittedly remember the name of offhand, but it was relatively rare. I tried to think, like, what would happen if I got that diagnosis? I think even with all the information that I have now, it, it would get you going a little bit, and and then you're stressing out about the stress because, of course, we all know how bad the, the mental stress of this is for the body. So um, it, it's a shame what's happening to these people. Now, of course, I, I probably already know the answer to this, but I'm asking this question to lead us into a, a deeper conversation with it. One of the biggest arguments that you constantly hear from Western medicine is that cancer is actually just getting – we're just getting better at diagnosing it. It's not that it's actually more common. And I think both can be true at the same time. Obviously, we're getting better at diagnosing it. But do you believe that cancer is actually just becoming more prevalent, and especially since you've been working on this for a while? And if so, what are, what are some of the main factors leading to this? Uh, this? Well, well it's statistically, you can't argue that cancer is not becoming more prevalent. It is in 1971 when Richard Nixon signed a document issuing 20 billion dollars or whatever for cancer research at that time. And now it's been, you know, exponentially more. Um, One in 21 Americans, that was the statistic in 1971, one in 21 Americans would be diagnosed with cancer in their lifetime. Now it's one in three. And some more recent statistics, it's even worse than that. So we are losing the war on cancer um, using our conventional model. And yes, we're getting better at diagnosing it and we can diagnose it faster that all that does all the all the early diagnosis benefit is that they start care for earlier um and they can show a kind of a rubber number greater success rate because their success rate is completely based upon um a five-year status so by the day you're diagnosed if you're diagnosed january 1st 2020 and you live till January 2nd, 2025, and you died, and you might have lived a horrible last three years of your life, you're still going down as a cure. So that is listed as a cure in their statistics so that their treatment is listed as a cure. So you were five years and one day past your date of diagnosis, you're cured. Well, you're dead. 
Okay, how did that work out? So that's that's really the push for early diagnosis so they can start care earlier. The time clock can start ticking earlier. If you're diagnosed by, you know, when you're of stage four cancer, you just got diagnosed last week, um, you know, the chance from, you know, uh, standards of care protocol of you living five years is probably not that great. Um, so they want an early diagnosis. No, I'm not saying that all doctors are just evil looking for numbers and their statistics to rise. Don't get me wrong. I think, and I'm not even against standards of care. I think there's lots of times that, you know, coupling alternative things with chemotherapy or radiation or debulking surgery is the right thing to do. I mean, I sometimes have to talk people into doing that. Um, but, um, it's, it's, uh, so don't, don't think I'm, you know, this alternative doctor that hates, you know, oncologists. But I do um, disagree with the ethics of many oncologists that are out there uh, because it is, um, it's not the, I just don't think it's the best, in the best interest of the patient always what they're recommending. I greatly appreciate you saying that because, you know, I should have brought it up already, but one of the things is I can imagine with a title like this podcast will probably be titled, we might get a unique listener or two, right? That's usually what happens any podcast. And so if they're listening for the first time, they might not get that. Yeah, FDN's in alignment with that. You're in alignment with that. This is not an against Western medicine thing. And especially with cancer, I don't think I could be any more for it because you're going to have to mix these things in. Like, I don't necessarily believe at all that my aunt was wrong for getting the surgery that she got uh, pretty soon after getting that diagnosis. It was the next three years that was ridiculous to me in how they tried to to handle this um, afterwards. So especially with cancer, guys, this isn't medical advice, but you got to be you really got to be open to both sides, I think, if you want to have some success with this. I've seen plenty of people go with autoimmune disease for many years and really didn't even do anything Western medicine wise. And then they can handle it uh, through functional medicine. Fine. Uh, this is a different ball game. And a lot of the times cancer can or is fatal. So you want to tread a little lightly and do everything that you can and, and respect people's decisions. So in terms of this, it's happening more and more. What do you think are the biggest things outside of the obvious, right? We could all generally say diet. I think our audience is advanced enough to know that. What are the main things, though, that are leading to these increases uh, increases in diagnoses? Well, first, let's understand what cancer is. You know, I know your listeners know, but um, it is really, it starts in one cell. It's not, you know, caused from a genetic issue. It's, um, it's something got inside the cell and disrupts the DNA in the nucleus. And so normally cells reproduce and, you know, and then the, the mother cell, you could say, dies. And this takes place, you know, multiple times a year. Your skin cells reproduce. The, the mother cell dies and that skin flakes off. And, and that's how your body ages, too. That's how your body continues to heal as well. Um, but it's when your cell goes in rapid replication. So something affected the DNA. Something is affecting the DNA and causing the cell to go into rapid replication and replicating cells that are going into rapid replication that has the same thing wrong with it. So something had to get inside the cell. Now, when we were uncovering the genome a number of years back, we were thinking, well, maybe this will uncover the cause of cancer. Well, it didn't. It wasn't a genetic source. There's very few cancers that have a pure genetic source to them. It's almost always a toxin. 
You know, it can be it can be a biotoxin that gets inside the cell, a virus that affects that, or a fungus. But most commonly, by far, it's a toxin that gets inside the cell. And so it could be a heavy metal, could be a, a you know a chemical from fertilizer, pesticide, herbicide. Um, that's really the thing that is the cause of cancer. So then you look at okay, well, our rate of cancer is going up so high. Well, are we exposed to more toxins? Are we exposed to more chemicals? Well, your listeners, you don't need to be convinced that we are exposed to more chemicals. Even if you're trying to eat a perfect diet organically, even, you know, your, through your mouth is only one source of exposure to toxins. And it might be one of our smaller sources right. of our exposure to toxins. You absorb through your skin. You absorb fastest through your lungs. Well, you absorb fastest through an injection, um, but so besides that, you're breathing in poisons all the time. You might be trying to eat organic food all the time, but you know your this carpet is gasifying right now, and so are you know the you know the, the whatever this shirt was was dyed in, and we're breathing in this stuff. We are exposed to so many poisons that. Um, that uh, uh, that we absorb and, uh, and our body has to get rid of, and what you don't get rid of becomes a part of you, mm-hmm. and it doesn't just sit in your extracellular spaces. It gets pushed into the into uh, intracellularly, and intracellularly it can affect other things in your cytopro- cytoplasm, and certainly if it gets into the nucleus and affects the nucleus, it can be the cause of cancer. So it can cause that rapid replication. So bottom line is, I mean, from a functional medicine perspective, the best thing you could do for your non-cancer patients is to help them th- help them understand the processes of detoxification. Hmm. So uh, that, they, that it's not just a one thing you're going to do every quarter and take this little package and detox yourself. It's, it is daily process of, if you are detoxifying what you're absorbing through whatever means today, it's going to become a part of you and it increases your risk of cancer. You talk about autoimmune disease. It can be the antigen that sparks an immune reaction against your own cells and be the cause of autoimmune disease as well. So it is really the big issue with ill health, period. Well, and I think this is... is segueing us into a, a really fun part of this conversation, as fun as this can be, uh, because I, I wanted to talk about your methodologies and the things that you've learned, because people focus, especially when they're new to this space, they focus a lot on the overwhelm of the toxins, as we should be. We just discussed that. We're loading up so much stuff into our world, it's incomprehensible. But we also forget that human beings were still exposed to things throughout history, maybe way less than now, but still exposed to things, and that we could also talk about this side. It's a perfect storm. Yes, we have more chemicals and toxins in our environment than ever before, but at the same time, we're also destroying or limiting our ability that we naturally have to detoxify these things. If you're getting, I mean, oversimplified, but if you're getting a good night's sleep, one of the things that sleep can do is help 
you know, your body move those things out. And so if we're sleeping worse than ever before, we're eating whatever it is, like 16, 17 times a day on average. If you count every time someone consumes a calorie and you never give the gut a break, we're now worsening our abilities, our body's ability to detoxify. And we're loading it up with more toxins than ever before. So we have the perfect storm. Um, and I love that we already just uh, got to the idea that detoxification is not something that you do once a quarter. I can't I'm not condemning anyone. I don't want to do that, but I cannot believe how often I see that even in the functional space. Oh, I'll just do this cleanse every few months. Like I don't think that's how it's supposed to be. You're talking about um, daily processes. So what are some of those daily things that people can start doing or that you help patients with? Even? Well, it gets a little complex, actually. Sure. I wrote a book about it, The Seven Phases of Detoxification, and people can download it. We can we'll have that in the show notes for you as well. So, um, but it is dealing with all these seven phases. Um, you know, we learned about the, you know, the three phases in our liver. Oh, I didn't hear about the other four phases. Well, um, everybody wants to start with chelation. Oh my gosh, I think I got, I did a hair analysis and I have high mercury, so I need to start a chelator. Well, you have no business starting a chelator unless you, all your other six phases are open. Because if you're going to start pulling stuff out of the tissues and it, does not have easy access to go through phase one, two, three in the liver and get through the gallbladder and be bound in the gut so you don't reabsorb it and be deposited in the toilet, you're just going to make yourself sicker. So um, the, the seven phases of detox are really talking about the, the chemistry of detoxification. You have to be able to you know, have healthy bowel movements that you're getting stuff deposited in the toilet, healthy urinary system that you're getting stuff out of your body. You have to be binding stuff in the gut these days because we're exposed to, especially women with estrogens, it's the number one thing that you're going to reabsorb. Hmm. Um, and you have to be binding this stuff up in the gut. If, you're, if your liver is doing all this work to conjugate things and to make things soluble and then to put it into the bile and then to get into the gallbladder and then the gallbladder into the small intestine and then you're just reabsorbing it and the liver sees it again. I can just picture your liver screaming like, what and uh, you know, is going on? Didn't I just get rid of you three days ago? You know, we have to be supporting that on a constant basis before we start trying to chelate stuff out of the tissues because you know our hair analysis came back you know, elevated. We have to be supporting all those pathways. So when you got like a, a toxicity test, like a hair analysis, and it does come back positive, that's just your sign. That's just, hey, this person is not getting rid of stuff very well. Not mm -hmm. this person was exposed to a lot of mercury. Well, we're all exposed to a lot of mercury. We're supposed to be getting rid of it. So you need to support these pathways. And then, so if, if, if you... But, I mean, most of your listeners understand everything that I just said, but somebody who doesn't could download my book and I go into detail in the seven phases of detox that I call that. Um, but one of the things that I think we miss, and I think what that practitioners sure. could often miss, is the neurology of detoxification. So we talk about the chemistry of detoxification. Oh, you got to use binders, you got to. You know, you know, make sure you've got a lot of fiber and you got to, you know, make sure you're supporting phase one and phase two in the liver and all these kind of things. That's talking about nutrition. That's talking about supporting things chemically. So that's the chemistry. But we often overlook the neurology. So what controls all of our cells function, what controls our detoxification pathway is 
the neurology, and that is your vagal nerve. So your your parasympathetic pathway controls both, and we're really hot to trot on that with our patients because your parasympathetics also control your immune system. So if you want to stimulate your immune system, you have to stimulate your parasympathetics. If you want to stimulate detoxification, you have to stimulate parasympathetics. So, and you talk about, well, that is number one, or at least high up in the rankings of why we can't get rid of what you alluded to, why we can't get rid of our toxins, even though we might be doing so many things right, because we live in a sympathetic driven world. So we're all stressed to the hilt that, you know, our to-do list is overflowing and, uh, you know, the pressure from home and work and, and thinking that we have to live in a, you know, million dollar house and drive these fancy cars. Everybody's living over budget. And the stress is, is even though you might think you're really good at handling it, um, I'm sure your parasympathetic system is, is suppressed and you're living in, and you got really good at, at successfully um, mitigating your sympathetic drive. But yeah. that doesn't mean your parasympathetics are actually functioning. And then we have a suppressed immune system. We have a suppressed detoxification pathway, among a lot of other things. We end up long-term having heart issues and blood pressure problems and diabetic problems. And, you know, your parasympathetics control, your insulin function control, so many things. So if, if you as a practitioner, if there's practitioners listening, can get good at teaching your clients to do parasympathetic exercises to, to, yeah, it's impossible to say, oh yeah, get rid of your stress in life, but to start focusing on that, start doing some parasympathetic stimulation. And I know it's very, you know, it's easier for us as when we're dealing with cancer patients to get people to do coffee enemas, one of the best parasympathetic stimulators. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, in my book, I have some more detail of different silly neurological exercises that really help stimulate parasympathetics and some others that help calm the part of the brain that controls the the sympathetics, which is the mesencephalon part of the midbrain, um, some exercises that will help calm that. So that is a key thing that I think a lot of us practitioners, including myself, forget about sometimes the neurology of this. I would agree because even when you said that, it's like, okay, is it a brand new concept? No. Um, would I even be listing that as the top important things if I had to guess what to do with uh, a cancer client? Probably not. You know, I wouldn't put it up there as, as much as I maybe should. And again, I can't stress that enough what I was saying before. The irony of this whole cancer thing and the way that we approach it as a society is there is no way that this person's body isn't under stress to some uh, degree because otherwise they never would have gotten cancer most likely and then we scare the hell out of them and we start treating them like this human from another planet and grant you it's in a good way a lot of the times right everyone was very sympathetic to my aunt and supportive of her but i i think that's probably stressful in in a way and i haven't been through that but i would imagine if like everyone looks at you as a she was a high level professional go figure right uh before the diagnosis and now everyone's almost looking at you as like something that you need to be taking care of and weak that's got a way on your mind and so you're already stressed coming in you have even more stress now i love that that's incorporated in um something like your book and i i wish i had more time between the time of scheduling and i would have liked to uh read it but i'll still get back to it and then maybe if there's another podcast to be had in the future based on what i read i'd love to do that but we'll have that in the show notes for people you also um 
you also offer courses. And one thing I, I didn't fully understand, are those courses, can be, they be taken for practitioners, right? Like for practitioners to learn to help their clients? Or would they well, be more for the consumer? Well, they're really for the consumer. Um, we've have, we have practitioners that take the course. Um, but And we do have Q&A times on the course that uh, um, but we don't allow practitioners to say, I have a patient that has this, you know. So that's not what that's for. But, you know, we're here to help anybody. So anybody that we can, we're here to help. We're here to try to educate as many people as we can. Um, and it, because that, the more the more practitioners can, you know, can, you know, I stand on the shoulders of other practitioners. You know, I'm no great hero in the health field. I stand on other people's shoulders. And I know that I, people need to stand on my shoulders, learn everything they can from me and from from my mentors. So um, it's just, we are being swamped with um, a very, our, our society is, is flipping. I used to say, people used to ask me, practitioners used to ask me when I used to do a lot of teaching to practitioners, aren't you afraid that the medical profession is going to come after you and, and with what you're doing? And, and at, at the time, this was a number of years ago, I really wasn't. I felt like things were loosening up and the standards of care um, field was loosening up and, and becoming more acceptable of alternative um, uh, practitioners. And in the last three years, boy, that just flip-flopped completely back. Um, yeah. I feel like sometimes we're back in the 1950s when uh, when Hoxie was thrown into prison and his clinics were closed up and and uh, the things that that burgeoned uh, the Mexico cancer clinics because they were shutting down anybody that wasn't doing um, what they thought was the right thing to do. We are moving more back into that field. So the more we can educate young practitioners in the functional perspective to do grassroots education where you're small enough where they're not going to come after you. Hey, I just fought off a state board issue and just settled it two weeks ago because they, they came after me again uh, six months ago. Um, Well, they just ended up dropping it because I didn't do anything, but um, this is what we're, what we're faced with. So the more that you could do grassroots education, to to give people hope where um, where they're not getting hope and and get people to calm down and just to look that there's there's other things that they can add that can really increase their survival rate um, it can it can just save people's lives I, I appreciate so much of this especially this idea that you stand on the shoulders of these other people because it's never that, I'm so wise, right? I'm a, I'm a younger person, but I've been through these health issues for so long and got exposed to this so early that it, it led me into this path. And people often wonder, I don't really take that many one-on-one clients. And they wonder, well, how, why do you do the podcast and speaking then and not that? It's because one, I just think that's my specific role. Like I, we need to share this with as many people as possible. I, I see exactly what you're talking about. You know, when it's one high level, very well known, infamous even doctor doing this, it's pretty easy for them to shut it down. When we have millions of practitioners running around out there 
doing the work, spreading the word and educating people. Um, it is what it is. And, and clearly we don't get political on this show, but I think anyone that listens to this, regardless of what side of the spectrum they fall on, it doesn't even matter because we all are in agreement that the way the alternative healthcare field was treated over the last three years is absolutely uh, awful. There's um, there is a, a, a meme that I saw online and it's, you know, you can get something from memes. It's more a political cartoon than it is a meme. And it had, you know, what was supposed to be millions of people basically hunched over and their backs are flat and on top of their backs is a board game right and there's only a few people playing the board game and the whole idea was all the people ever had to do was just stand up and the game's over that's it you can't do anything there's no fighting there's no war it has nothing to do with that you just stand up and the board game's over and I think that's what we need to do, right? This is why we do the podcast is to get this out to as many people as possible um, and just let them know there's alternative options because if enough people stand up, the game is over um, and people can have a level playing field. They can still go to Western Medicine. We encourage it as you already did multiple times in this podcast. But for them to not even have these other options, to them be treated in an unethical way, as you mentioned, with these rush tactics and, and scare tactics and fear mongering, um, that, that's not a level playing field. And that's just uh, it's straight up not fair, right? It is. And I totally agree. And I and 100% uh, would agree with everything you just said. We just need to be educated people. And to just keep teaching, keep teaching, keep teaching. That's mm-hmm. the key. One other thing I wanted to uh, get into today is, and I know that, I mean, obviously you can't get into the nitty gritty. Every case is complex. But you mentioned that you take on a lot of stage four patients. How would the approach be different, if at all, um, with a stage four patient versus someone who maybe just got diagnosed with a cancer that is actually not um, typically that deadly or at the very least has a, a long rate of survival would, would those uh, attempts be not attempts um treatments be different in your world uh no uh, the, i mean with with our patients everybody's different so um the way we do the testing we get a cheek swab from people we test specifically what we want them to be on and what we want them to be doing so we don't have like set protocols sure so it doesn't make any difference to me if you're stage four and you got two weeks to live or you're you know stage one b and you know it, it doesn't make any difference. We still need to attack it. So a person can move from stage one to stage four relatively quick. And a person, you know, many times when they come to us with stage four, they don't have a lot of hope because they're coming. Why didn't they come to us earlier? Well, sometimes mm-hmm. people got diagnosed when they're stage four um, and, and they didn't have that option. But when they're stage four, they've done two years of standards of care and they haven't really looked at any alternative things to this point, and now they're told, oh, it's not working, you're going to need to contact hospice, and now they freak out and then they contact us. They're fairly scared. So our job is to give them hope and to say, okay, you haven't even done any of this yet. Let's let's start from ground zero here and let's build your body up. Then we see people turn around. So we, we, you know, I don't say that we have success. I give all the credit to God. God is your healer. But we see some pretty miraculous things in our office. So um, it, it, it doesn't scare me at all if someone is stage four. So we just got to get them to not be fearful. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. It's not at the very least. I know it must be pretty darn hard to acknowledge this in the moment, but 
you would think, I mean, fear would be the last thing you want to feel because obviously it is just going to accelerate that stress on your body. I, again, that's coming from a place of ignorance, thankfully, of not having dealt with this. I'm sure that's easier said than done. But it's nice to have a practitioner like you in front of them or online or wherever that has that calmness with it. I, I'm sure that builds their their confidence a little bit. Can I ask you, um, and maybe it's a little earlier than I would have wanted to do it because we still have things to talk about, but when whenever the cancer thing comes up because we've done well over 200 episodes on here and it really is only a thing that comes up every now and then maybe once every two months on average uh can i just hear uh one of like the the best stories that you've ever had with maybe even a stage four person where they come to you thinking that they're at the end of the line and it's just it's worked out really well even if they didn't cure the cancer maybe it was just an extension of life i'd love to hear something like that i think that's good for the show well, we have a lot. Matter of fact, that was one of the things that the board came after us for because we had a whole page full of video testimonials that people had made. They did testimonials at home and they sent us the videos. They were so thankful. Um, but one of our one of my most memorable patients, he passed away now, but he came to us and, um, uh, a number of years ago um, and I remember him because he looked like my dad and I went through my father's death and my dad passed away from heart disease and kidney failure. But I remembered what he looked like because he was so ashen. Uh, his face was just ashen the last few weeks. And this man came to us looking like that. And uh, he came in and he said he was given two weeks to live by Mayo. We're in, we were in Minnesota at the time. So Mayo, we see a lot of Mayo patients. Two weeks to live by mail, and he said, my wife just wants me to come in here and do whatever you have to do. And that's what we were doing, a lot of treatment in the office at that time. And um, oh, he just reminded me of my dad, and I literally had to excuse myself from the room and just kind of recompose myself because I was just like, oh, Lord, why did you send me this guy? You know, hmm. he's this is just really a bad memory. My dad had just passed away just shortly before that. Well, he started with care with us, and he is coming in every day for that first week. And then he says at the end of the first week, he goes, oh, I won't be here next week because my uh, my son's coming uh, in from uh, California, and we're going to go hunting. I'm like, oh, my goodness. So, okay, well, Lord, maybe you just sent him here to get better so you could go hunting with his son. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. Um, well, so I was, I was kind of thought, he's probably not going to be back you know i don't know what's going to happen to this guy uh, such a sweet older guy he was in his late 70s sure enough he comes back in the week afterwards he goes okay i'm ready back to start again and he just kept getting better and better and better and better and better we lived another three and a half years and when he passed away um his son who i never met but his son um ordered uh an autopsy um uh, because his son was convinced my dad didn't die of cancer well, prior to him coming to us, he had stage four uh, pancreatic cancer with metastasis to the stomach and the liver and the esophagus when he came to us. So when the three and a half years later, when he passed away, his son ordered an autopsy and the autopsy, the son read the autopsy report at his dad's funeral because it said there was no cancer present and he died of cirrhosis of the liver caused from the chemotherapy that he had prior to coming to us. So that was a moving story. I still hadn't met the son, but the son was just so convinced that what he did alternatively, wow. you know, saved his life or at least for enough, let him live. And he died at, I think he was 83 years old or something when he passed away. Yeah. But um, 
but just that, of course, he's still not alive. He's not alive today, but he lived for a lot longer than two weeks. Um, we have another pancreatic cancer patient. She's out over seven years right now. She was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer when she was pregnant, and they told her to have an abortion and to start chemotherapy right away, and instead she came to us, never had an abortion. She had the baby, never did any chemotherapy, and she's completely absent of disease, according to her oncologist. So wow. um, so we have, we have lots of stories like that, but I, it, it's, we don't cure everybody. You know, we don't cure anybody. Uh, so... And not everybody, you know, lives a lot longer than they were supposed to. Most people do. Um, you know, I just think that adding alternative, regardless of what you're going to do with standards of care, when you start cleaning up the body and you do things that are going to help um, your cells function better, you're just going to have a much better quality of life. And um, isn't that what it's all about? I mean, I think our days are numbered before the foundations of the earth are set. It's just we have to decide what we're going to do with them. Yeah. I, um, on the occasion that I've been fortunate enough to talk to people like you who add this functional side to people dealing with something so serious, this is par for the course, right? They, they are very honest in acknowledging no one there's plenty of cases right where you're just extending the life um if that although you have these crazy amazing stories like the one with this uh this guy that reminded you of your dad it's just so awesome to hear this one thing i want people to understand too is is and i'll connect this i was a, a really anxious kid as as a kid <laughs> i had a panic disorder all these things and so i lived so much of my life in fear and just being worried to do things and now what i do as the older i get I don't do it in a fearful way, but I think to myself, okay, well, let's say you had six months left and I knew that right now. I don't do that because of any health condition. I just say, hypothetically, what if you knew that it was about six months until you weren't going to be here anymore? Would you still not go do that thing? And almost every single time, with the exception of skydiving, I haven't gotten myself onto that one yet. I've been able to work myself through the fear by just saying, well, yeah, of course I would do that. I'm like, well, you're an idiot. Nothing's promised anyway, right? Like you don't know that you have that other six months, so you might as well just go do that darn thing. And so my point in mentioning this and how I'm connecting this is for you and your work uh, and the work of these patients, really, right? To, for them to be allowed an additional three years when they think they have two weeks, the quality of that life and the appreciation of that life for those three years while they're here, I'm sure those hunting trips are a little different than the ones that they had you know, 20 years ago. I'm sure there's, there's just a different... Um, beauty in the day-to-day -day stuff and three years when you're thinking like someone who might who knows this, uh, that they might not be here tomorrow and is living life in that way I, I think that that is an amazing gift to be able to give people um regardless of whether or not that man would have ended up passing away from cancer or not to give that extension of life with that level of appreciation uh, that's a pretty cool thing to be able to do with people well and i think one of the reasons why i titled my book stop fighting cancer and start treating the causes Way back when I first started seeing people with cancer, I discovered that that was a huge issue. The fear was a big issue. And, and, and I thought that, you know, I just noticed in the people that had the attitude that, hey, well, it is what it is. Uh, God is in control. I'm going to do everything on my part to get better, but I'm just going to trust him for the results. They ended up having the better results versus a person who's like freaking out, full of anxiety, can't handle anything. You know, their life is in chaos. Their their they their anxiety has created chaos in their home life. Um, 
uh, and and they have the attitude of you know you see these bumper stickers you know like f cancer right mm-hmm. um, and I get that you know people are angry when they get a serious diagnosis like this how can this be fair you know I've done everything right in my life or whatever whatever their justification is they're angry about their diagnosis. I understand that maybe that's a phase that everybody has to go through. But I think you have to get to the other side. Um, when I say, when I have patients that think that cancer, get to the point maybe that they that they understand that their cancer is a blessing mm-hmm. and not a curse, that I'll tell you, they just have better results. And their quality of life is so much better. Um, and And... and not, I know we are, have gone a while here already, but I am. We're gonna. We're gonna I, am at, I got a diagnosis stage four cancer, you know, and I'm on six I'm, years now, um, and my type of cancer, not very successfully treated medically. So it was really easy for me to refuse chemo because that you know the average person when they get the stage four diagnosis to my cancer, your average life expectancy is about fifteen months. So um, it was really easy. And that was doing chemo. So it was like, okay, well, I ain't doing that. So, um, so I've been through it myself. And you, you do go through these anger stages and such, but you have to get to the other side and go, this is a blessing. Uh, you, just like you said, you can count every day as a blessing now. You, you look at the world differently now. And, and, oh, yeah, you could say, well, we should all do that. We should all look at, like, what if you're going to die tomorrow? How would you live today? But we don't. You know, right. sometimes it takes the scare of a serious diagnosis. The truth is we're all terminal, <laughs> you know. <laughs> no one's getting out alive. <laughs> no one's getting out of here, right? You can get hit by a bus this afternoon. It's like, yeah. well, how are you going to live differently? What do you want to leave as your legacy, how people are going to look at you uh, and be, how their life is going to be changed because of what you did and what you said and how you lived and how you went through difficult times. Mm-hmm. And uh, what kind of faith did you show when you went through difficult times? Who are you holding on to? Uh, I think those are so important lessons that you pass on to your, to your, um, to the generations that follow you and the people that have you've been able to touch. Yeah, this is amazing. Um, that's what my my aunt, although again she did pass away from it, right? She she also didn't take any alternative routes for whatever it's worth to the listener. But my aunt, I didn't even like I knew her well, right? We went to Christmas together and we went to Thanksgiving together. But you don't really know someone it, sometimes in your family. And when I saw that and what it was like, she became the best version of herself. Like she went so deep into the mind and was so positive through all of this and how she interacted with her family and interacted with herself um, and interacted with the people around her, what she ended up doing. And this is uh, this is not for me to say, because I, I don't know what I, I'm a believer myself. I don't know what God's plan is with all this, but it's sometimes as hard as it is to admit hard for me to say that this wasn't within the plan for my aunt to experience this and pass this way, because in her name, in her name already over the last two years, there's been over seven, eight hundred thousand dollars raised for a nonprofit cancer center that now offers, go figure, alternative treatments to people with wow. cancer for no cost. It is completely okay. donation based. They can go there and get acupuncture. They just have a community to talk to people. And that is in her name in our town now. 
because of that was her vision. She knew she was going to pass at some point and just said, I want this done. Someone figure this out. And the family, her best friend, um, a local guy, uh, they have worked tirelessly to make this work still. And so is it my um, place to say, oh, it was supposed to happen? No, I'm just saying looking at it now, it's it's kind of hard to say that there wasn't an amazing benefit from this. But at the very least, it stemmed from her mindset around this. She said, I'm going to make the best out of this possible and act like it's a blessing um, and not live the last few years of my life uh, feeling sorry for myself every single day. That's Again, I can't say that for myself because I haven't been through it, but there's people that have done it, man, and look at how beautiful it is when they do. Absolutely. That's fantastic. Yeah. Dr. Connors, where can people find you and your courses? Because I know I think we're going to have something worked out here, and um, if something needs to be updated, I can release it accordingly when we get that updated. But I think there's some type of uh, discount our practitioners can get, right, and our listeners? Yes, I believe so. Um, but go to Connors Clinic, C-O-N-N-E-R-S uh, dot com, and you'll see our courses. You'll see that's our cancer website. You'll see um, all that we have there. You can contact our office, talk to a real person, and they can direct you and, you know, and help you with ever any questions that you might have. Thank you. I love having this connection because, um, you know, given enough time, this is going to come up again. Hopefully not for myself, but for someone I care about. So the, I've had people come on for different reasons. This is the first time where it's like, oh, now I actually feel like I have somewhere to call uh, if this if this did happen. I will have all of this. I know I said it a few times, but in the show notes for people. So don't worry about anything if you missed it or didn't jot something down. But I want to finish with the signature question that we always finish on on the Health Detective podcast. And, you know, it's not cancer specific. We're going a little more general now. If the, the question is, if I could give you a magic wand and you could get every single person in this world to do one thing for their health. So you can actually force them to do one thing or you can get them to stop doing one thing. What is the one thing that you would get them to do? Nobody's ever asked me that before. I think that I think I think to ask better questions, really. Um, it's not to you know eat better or do this better. It's just to start asking themselves questions and not just um, be led like a sheep. I think just yeah. to learn to ask questions. Excellent, Dr. Connors. Thank you so much for today. All right, thank you. 